Hello, I'm Diana Edwards. This is Our Stories, Conversations on Conscious Living and Dying. All of these stories are courageous journeys of self-awareness and healing, often told by guests who have never been interviewed before. While each story is unique to the individual, these beautiful stories remind us that the human experience is a collective experience. And so, the wisdom you will hear and feel can speak to us all. Welcome to Our Stories. Tess, welcome to Our Stories. I really appreciate you being here. Just so our audience knows, you and I are very new friends. We met about six weeks ago, and we had a phone conversation that was so uplifting to me because you're 30, and you and your husband live in New York City, And we had this wonderful discussion about normalizing the conversation around death and dying. And it was great for our 30-year age difference to be talking about the exact same thing with as much enthusiasm about how do we help people in the world normalize this conversation. So thank you so much for being here today. It's really great to be able to talk to you. Thank you. Now, I always start with giving the audience some idea of your early experiences around death and dying. You know, was it something you grew up really accustomed to? You never had to deal with it? Because that kind of helps contextualize the stories you're going to share with us today. And the thing I remember was when we were first speaking, you said, when I asked about your childhood experience, you said, well, I was sort of like a doggy death whisperer. That's an interesting way to start. Can we go there? And you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, I just meant that, um, you know, we had a lot of animals at my house growing up, um, cats and dogs. A lot of them were outdoors most of the time. Um, And for some coincidence or for some reason, I just happened to be the one who always found them, either after they had been long dead and were out in the, you know, in the desert or or I would be happened to be the one that was there when they did get sick and they were dying. How comfortable were you with that? Um, it definitely was scary for me you know, when I was really little. Um, I think the first the first one who I found had been <laughs> dead for a while. So that was, you know, it was a shock to see the process of a, of a body, you know, sort of decomposing. Um, so, yeah, that was scary for me. And the other ones I found in, in more recent <laughs> states. So that was more, you know, I felt like I was with them a little bit more. So I got used to it in a, in a strange way. And when I was with the ones who were who were dying, it, you know, it was I felt like I was it was I was there to comfort them in some way. So that was nice in a way. That's beautiful. Now, thank you for saying that, because a lot of people are afraid to be with their pets when they die. And it's one of my big teaching points is there are first teachers. It's a great yeah. opportunity for us to get comfortable with the subject, with the process, find mm-hmm. ways to bring comfort to them and You know, with children, when they experience death and don't feel they're supposed to talk about it because maybe it upsets other people, it can become a very scary thing. They can have nightmares. Their imagination can kind of run away with it. So that you had this kind of conscious experience in your family, was open to talking about it and acknowledging the pet, was a nice foundation, it sounds like, for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely got used to, to what, you know, what it looked like, you know, in a way with animals. So it's still emotional. It's different than humans, but yeah. So your first funeral that you remember, I think you said you were age seven, and it was your great-grandmother, Kate. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, my dad's grandmother. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what that funeral was like? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was scary in a way for me to have known her as an old woman and then see her, you know, just see her body, you know, decorated in, in the coffin and have everyone going and looking and touching her. Um, yeah, it was it was scary for me to see her body that way. You know, it's interesting. I was 18 when I first saw someone in a coffin. It mm-hmm. was my grandmother. And I remember arriving there, going in for the viewing mm-hmm. and standing and seeing her and she had her glasses on and all this makeup on. That's why I kind of liked when you said the word decorated mm-hmm. because I, it actually, I'm 18, right? You were mm-hmm. seven. It kind of scared me for a minute. I thought, is she really dead? She looked so lifelike. I thought she was going to open her eyes any minute and read a book. And I remember saying to my mom, you know, why are they all talking about how great she looks? She's dead. And not that dead has to be this bad, horrible thing, but I felt like there was this sense of we don't want to acknowledge that anything's happened. We're going to put the lid on and, you know, she'll be buried. And it just, I found something disturbing about that personally. Maybe it does bring comfort to other people, but I just didn't want her seeming so alive, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the notion that she was going to be buried. That was my experience many years after your experience as Mm -hmm. far as age. So what happened in 2009 was your first real personal adult experience. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us about that with a loved one who was dying? Yeah. So that was with my Aunt Mary who um, had colon cancer and it had become very advanced and spread throughout her body. Um, So yeah, she was in the hospital. She was on a breathing machine. I'm not sure what it's called, but it was like a cup around her mouth that was pumping air into her lungs because she had lost, you know, that function. Um, So, and me and, you know, my cousins and my grandparents and uh, aunts and uncles were at the hospital with her, you know, sort of taking turns in her room. She would take off her breathing mask to have a sip of water uh, or something, and then she'd have to put it immediately back on because it was essentially breathing for her. So, yeah, I was I was in the room with her and my cousin Felicia, and she took off the mask to have a, an ice chip or a sip of water, um, and then she she just refused to put it back on. And she wasn't able to speak much at that point, but, you know, she shook her head. You know, we were like, oh, here, put it, you know, time to put it back on. And she shook her head. She pushed it away. I think we tried a couple of times to talk her into it. Um, but then it was pretty clear that she she had made up her mind. She w- she did not want to put it back on. You said a beautiful quote. I saw death in her decision. Yeah. I mean, I could just tell by, you know, the look on her face. She was determined that whatever would happen, she she couldn't have this thing on her anymore. And she was ready to to make that that choice to not put it back on. So once you realized she had made this decision and Mm -hmm. it was only a matter of minutes at the most, probably before she would die, you ran out the hall to get the rest of the family. Mm, Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm glad my cousin Felicia was with me there. Um, I asked her to stay with aunt and um, I just went down the hall real as quick as I could. Um, Everyone who was there from my family was in a little waiting room kitchen thing. Um, and I just told them, you all better get in here like real fast, as quick as you can. So everyone piled in my grandparents first and her best friend, um, Mary Beth. And then all the rest of us piled in the little entry hallway to her hospital room. And yeah, by the time I got back in, I was sort of at the back of the line. Um, 
yeah, she was, my grandparents were holding her and her friend Mary Beth was there right with her and they were, you know, consoling her and they were saying, we're here with you. Um, but yeah, by the time I got back in the room, she was, she was, you know, in her last moment for sure. And you mentioned a look on her face. Yeah. Could you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a, it was scary in the moment. It was shocking to see, but yeah, she had a intense expression on her face in a way like. I wouldn't say it was like she didn't look afraid, but she was she was definitely experiencing some strong last last moment. She was looking sort of up at an angle, eyes wide open, mouth open. Yeah, look of brilliance for sure. And this might just be, you know, in my imagination that she was looking up at some bright thing. But yeah, that's how it looked in my perception anyway. But your family was all together. And that's what's so beautiful about that story. You had a second death not long after that, that was a real contrast to your aunt's death. Mm -hmm. And that was your uncle who died suddenly. Could you say something about that? And very unexpectedly. Yeah. Yeah. So several years later, um, my dad's brother, Danny, um, he was, he loved to ride his bicycle and in Albuquerque and he was on a frontage road in Albuquerque riding his bike and was hit head on. Um, and died pretty much on impact. Someone in the opposite lane was having a, wasn't feeling well, and they lost consciousness briefly, and they veered across and hit him head on. And so you just basically hear that from a phone call. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, a complete out of nowhere shock, and he was just gone. What's interesting, I think, is the discussion on how we process Mm-hmm. With your aunt, you had some sense that it was coming mm-hmm. well in advance. And then, of course, you happened to be there beautifully that the mm-hmm. day she made this very conscious choice. All this love and family right there with her. Mm-hmm. And then the contrast of this sudden death. Yeah. How how do you contextualize that emotionally? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's they both are so different because, yeah, with my Aunt Mary, you know, like you said, we had... We, we knew it was coming, so we could speak all the kind, kind words of love to her that, you know, we could express and we could try to comfort her in some way. Um, but then again, she was suffering, you know, so that was hard, too, to watch her suffer. Uh, then with, with my uncle, it was, it was totally flipped because, you know, you, you feel like, oh, there's so much we didn't, I didn't get to, to say or hug him or see him. But then it was over really quick. And he, you know, was doing something he loved to do. So That's true. Who knows when we're going to die? Yeah. I mean, none of us know. Yeah. And that's one of the things I like to work on with people because I really feel a lot of adults carry this inner pain over the years where they've never been able to grieve a loss or a death early in their childhood mm-hmm. of a parent and then or a grandparent or a pet. Mm-hmm. And then they get older and another death happens and Mm -hmm. they really still don't know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And then another one, because that's life, right? But we stuff. So we stuff it because it's not maybe acceptable to talk about it too much. Mm -hmm. Or we see that if we did, it would upset maybe our children. We don't want to, we think Mm -hmm. it's going to upset our children when maybe our children need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so many other scenarios. And I witness a lot of people, you know, 40 years later with this ache in their heart or Mm -hmm. that's just growing in a sense unconsciously. Mm -hmm. So for you to come and share 
these two contrasting situations and how you're comfortable talking about them and still processing it. Mm -hmm. And if it comes up again for you, you, you know, you share that and you Mm -hmm. keep it something that has movement. It's not stuck in you. It's really a beautiful gift you're giving us today, role modeling your ease at this conversation. But now we're going to move to one death Mm -hmm. that was a peer. Could you share that? Mm, Yes. Yep. Um, My friend, my good friend, Jake Daniels, um, he went to school with me at Point Park University in Pittsburgh. And my freshman year, he lived right across the hall from me. So he became, you know, one of my tight in my tight circle of friends. Um, And that was we met um, our freshman year. um, And then our junior year at Point Park, he he became diagnosed with a leukemia. And, you know, he was young and healthy. And and so there was a lot of like hope around his recovery and he was doing well on his on his um, treatments. Um, And then, you know, the the doctors recommended because he was so young and healthy that a bone marrow transplant would be something that might help him to truly, you know, recover. Um, So he but that's a very, very rough thing for the body to go through. So he, um, in the process of after the bone marrow transplant, you know, it brings up all kinds of complications and immune weaknesses. So he, you know, he died of complications from the bone marrow transplant. Um, yeah. So that was shocking. You know, he was our age, he was our good, good friend, and we all had a lot of hope around his recovery. So that was shocking. And that's one that I, I still like have trouble believing it <laughs> in a way. Believing that he died? Yeah, in a way, you know, because I know that way? I know that he did. But then sometimes I think of him and I just think, oh, he's still around, right? Like he was so he had so much like passion for life and he was such an exuberant guy. Um, so it's hard to believe that one still. Do you feel him in any way, like as a presence in your heart or your life? Maybe just by the fact that you still feel he's alive in your thoughts. Yeah, I think in my mind he's, he's whenever I think of him, he's just such an example of someone who didn't hesitate to, to live his life. Like he was just, yeah, he was just a really exuberant person and he didn't really let anyone stop him from just like living to the fullest. So he lived every moment yeah. that he had. So yeah. So in that way, I'm I'm glad that he, even though his life was short, um, he really he really lived it. What would he want you to know if he were here right now and could say something to you? Oh my god! I don't know. Not to put you on the he spot. He was such but. a jokester. Like he was such a teaser. So so I don't know what he would say. I think he might be happy watching the smile on your face as I asked you that question, and you didn't have to have an answer, <laughs> but. You lit up when I asked you about him and you were sitting there remembering him. And I think more than anything, that's what our loved ones want for us, right? That Mm -hmm. when we stop and take a moment and Mm -hmm. reconnect to their presence in our Mm -hmm. life. And he was a singer, actually. I have a CD he made when he was in high school of all these songs that he recorded. Um, So sometimes I put that on and I enjoy it. (laughs) I enjoy hearing him sing. That's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That That's just a really great story. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. 
So you also brought me a story that your husband, John, said mm-hmm. he would like you to share with our audience. Mm-hmm. Do you mind telling yeah. us one more story? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he, um, his mother passed away um, a little over five years now. So it was 2015. Um, she had breast cancer and John was with her, you know, through the last we were already living in New York, but he was able to to go back to Pittsburgh for the, the last two months that she was alive um, and care for her. And yeah, her cancer had spread all throughout her body. And so it was it was a, a, a painful ending. You know, it was it was a slow two months and you know, of her getting weaker and the, you know, cancer taking over. So, yeah, John had a really personal um you know, experience, intimate experience with her when she was in her final months. And he was living in the house with her and his father, and they were both, you know, taking care of her. Um, and, you know, his siblings were around too, but, you know, him and his father were there overnights. So so they had a lot of uh, of work to do, caring for her and watching her, you know, be in pain and go through all the the slow process of dying. So... Yeah, that was very, very, very hard for him. And you said you were so proud to watch how he handled it. Yeah, I was. I was. I was really. He was. He's now really happy that he was able to be there so, so much in the end, and really do what he could to take care of her, um, even though it was really painful for him. And she made things easy by having her do not resuscitate order, you said, and things like that, that helped yeah, them know I, what she wanted. I, I think she, she arranged, you know, what she wanted, which was to stay at home under hospice care and, you know, not, not be, you know, brought to the hospital. And so she was, they did what they could to manage her pain. Um, but she was at home in her bedroom with her family surrounding her. So I would call that while a difficult situation, mm-hmm. it was a beautiful way to die, having people who aren't afraid to be with you, mm-hmm. who, who are taking that journey with you. Mm-hmm. I can see why you're proud of your husband. Mm-hmm. Is there anything he would like you to say on his behalf regarding that? Because he was so gracious in, in <laughs> suggesting you tell this story. Yeah, and- no, he, I mean, I kind of asked him that. And he he said there wasn't there wasn't one thing that he wanted me to share other than, you know, I think he would agree that it's important to have these conversations and to to share experiences and share stories um, around it and to, you know, consider what death what death is and what it what it looks like and yeah, just to have it be a part of life to to consider it, not to push it away, but to to remember and think about it. That's beautiful. And I couldn't agree more with his opinion and yours, because I know you both share that. Now, speaking of remembrance, you had a very beautiful, is it a ritual every year with the tree and the ornament? <laughs> yeah, so John's mom was a lover of Christmas, and she she was definitely someone in his household growing up that like kept the their their Christmas traditions alive and she was all she was really into having a, a, a tree a real tree that they would have and I didn't grow up without usually we, we had a fake tree that we would pull out um so every year John and I you know we go 
down the street, someone sells Christmas trees on the sidewalk and we pick out a little one and bring it to our apartment and we decorate it and we have a little ornament that has Jeannie, that's her name, Jeannie, um, that we put on the tree. And yeah, it's just a nice way for us and for him to to remember her in, in a in something that she loved and that brought her joy and brought, you know, their family together. So yeah, that's one little ritual we have that reminds us of her every year. And that ornament stays on a little stand the rest of the year, you said, I think, yeah. right at the front door? Yeah, I have a little like curly hook thing that, you know, we put on the tree and then the rest of the year we put it on this little little hook that sits, you know, in our where you walk in the door. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it brings you joy and peace to do that in her mm-hmm. honor every year. Mm-hmm. Well, those stories are fantastic, and I'm sure will touch numerous people because we, like you said, we all have so many different ways we experience death in our lives or someone dying. And so I want to first and foremost to say I'm so honored you came and shared those with us today. And now I would just like to move the conversation a little bit to what you do, mm-hmm. because we also have a little bit of that in common as well as far as using creative arts and in your case, dance, for healing and for expression. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do in New York and tell us about CJ? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I'm the general manager for the Dave Alois Firon Dance Company. Um, so Dave Alois, um, who goes by Deva, is a close friend of mine, and she's the you know artistic director of her own company, the Dave Alois Firon Dance Company. Um, so one of the pieces that she um, created recently and that we've been, you know, still showing virtually now um, is called For CJ. So, um, yeah, it was inspired by the loss of her nephew, CJ, who died of a fatal asthma attack in t- 2017. For CJ, the dance itself, it's it really... Deva says it uses nature to explore loss and remembrance and also tells CJ's story, you know, through movement and through visual arts and through music all together. I just got to watch it thanks to you um, virtually, and it was very impactful. Now, I was trained uh, as a drama therapist and we trained in the creative arts therapies. We, we did a little bit of time with art therapy, dance therapy, movement therapy. And personally, I was surprised. I'm not a dancer. We would not want anyone to witness me dancing. (laughs) But when it came to just the movement expression part of release anger, release grief, show Mm -hmm. us grief, I was amazed at how therapeutic it was because sometimes we don't have the words for those Mm -hmm. feelings. But to be able to, without judgment, stomp, you know, move, set music, drum, whatever, so many things we incorporated, music therapy. I was really, really impressed with how freeing that was. Mm-hmm. So that's when you are the person doing it in sort of a, a simpler movement therapy kind of way. Mm-hmm. But to watch the performance that you shared with me on CJ was really, really impactful just as a virtual audience mem- you know, member. And I thought, this is incredible that you're out there helping people experience, process, grief, sadness Mm -hmm. through dance. Yeah, no, it's definitely very powerful. And um, 
The other thing that's cool about for CJ is that, you know, Deva, Deva wants to tell his story and through arts and through community. And part of that's cool about the beginning of the piece is for the live audience members uh, that there are these little leaves that everyone gets or cloth that the audience gets on their way in. And then they're directed if they would like to write with a marker on the leaf, um, you know, a well wish for someone that they have lost or something that they would like to say or just their name, whatever it is, it's open. And so the audience members can write this note. And then at the beginning of the piece, there's a rope that comes around and the audience gets to tie the leaf to the rope. And the rope is also incorporated in the piece itself. And then the rope grows with each performance. All these leaves are collected. So, it, you know, it's like this living example of, of everyone remembering their own losses and then bringing it all together, you know, in a shared tree, you know. I remember that rope in the performance. Yeah. It appears a great deal from about the middle on. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what the leaves represented. And I loved when you told me that the audience actually mm -hmm. gets to participate by writing on the leaves and tying them onto the vine themselves. So Tess, before we go, is there anything else you would like to tell us about the performance for CJ? Um, yeah. So Deva has created sort of two folds to, to the you know, honoring CJ. Um, so for CJ is the dance piece, which you saw online. Um, and then she also has a for CJ initiative. Um, so that's meant to address like the systematic environmental negligence around, you know, asthma as it related to his death and, you know, the ways in which in New York City, you know, it's, it's three to five times more likely for Blacks and Hispanics to die or to be hospitalized with asthma. So, you know, she wants to really address that through arts and through community. So it's so part of it is sharing the work and and then part of it is having um, asthma awareness events, you know, just to, to build awareness around it. So she's really bringing this into the community at large mm -hmm. and the virtual community as well. Yes, yeah. And we're working hard on, you know, bringing more virtual um, access to to this piece and to this initiative. So his story really is just has a life of its own yeah, right now and yeah. can really reach a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Thank you for bringing all your beautiful stories to us today. Well, thank you for listening and asking about them. Oh, it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it, Tess. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.